Hello. Today on the Loopcast, we have Michael Kaufman, a CNA analyst focusing on Russia and Russian foreign policy. Um, as a reminder, CNA is not an acronym, and this is correctly uh, referenced as CNA, a nonprofit research and analysis organization. Um, we wanted to uh, do a show on Russia and do a series on, on Russian foreign policy um, for obvious reasons, but also um, we wanted to begin to figure out um, the sources of Russia's rise as a near as a near peer competitor as of late in the last decade, and then also figure out um, what is the strategy, what is the approach, how do they approach foreign policy and national security um, differently than the United States. So please welcome Michael Kaufman. Um, I want to start off with uh, just a very basic question. And what do you see as the pillars, the key pillars of Russian strategy? I think uh, we hear a lot about uh, hybrid warfare, new generation warfare, and just you know, just this bag of of you know terms and references uh, to their strategy. But in your view, what do you see as the key pillars of Russian strategy? Mm. Uh, great question. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, strategy ultimately exists on different levels, right? There's grand strategy, there's strategy in conflict, there's um, strategy in a particular operation or, or war. So uh, in terms of many of these terms, I think, I think they, they, uh, they shed a little light and actually add a lot of heat to the conversation because they, they tend to be um, uh, broadly used terms that are kitchen sink terms. They lump everything together and they kind of cloud the actual understanding of uh, Russian strategy in conflict. So by and large, um, we see Russia in uh, crisis and a lot of conflicts employ what you could call an emergent strategy or lean strategy. This is a fairly common term in the business community. It's well known amongst either large infrastructure companies or many startups that you may know today like Google and others have used this all the time. And part of the reason why Russian strategy is a bit difficult to analyze is because it is quite emergent where uh, it's quite clear that Political objectives or desired political ends are set, and they know what they'd like to get, what they're after, whereas the ways are very fungible and flexible. And this approach is best described as a fail-fast, fail-cheap approach where uh, Russia attempts to attain leverage, um, and, and, and much about strategy is basically a theory of victory of how you get leverage in a particular situation that's going to get you what you want, right? But... Um, in their attempts to, in their quest for leverage, they have a bunch of approaches that they basically throw at the problem. Lots of arrows going at the target, and they're not sure which one's going to succeed, and so they're looking to see which one shows some promise, and then they double down on that one and, and throw resources into what's looking like it's promising. Uh, however, at the same time, many of them are contradictory and uh, competitive, and this in part is a, just not, not just a reflection of sort of the way Russia does strategy, but it's partly because of the nature of the Russian state that it's very well suited towards an emergent strategy and not all that well suited towards a well-thought-through, long-term, deliberate strategy. Uh, and, and in that respect, we can see that um, there's very little path dependency in where Russia takes a particular path in a conflict, and then it's shown to be unworkable or, or unsuccessful then they very quickly abandon that approach and fix something else. And so the, the, the system's very agile in that regard. Um, and it often, uh, if, if anything, it definitely leads Western responses that the United States and West is almost 
always and exclusively in a reactionary role and Russia's driving events. Um, and and it's that, that way it's kind of hard to lead the target. Now, um, there are, of course, major downsides to emergent strategy. And so one of the things that's interesting is uh, the stratagems that Russia employs. And stratagems are not strategy. Stratagems are basically a set of ploys. They're like operational approaches. They're cards that you play in a particular conflict. And here there's more commonality because the problem with Russian strategy is that it's very different from conflict to conflict, from scenario to scenario, so there's no model. And all the people that constantly argue that there's a doctrine and there's a model and they do this thing, they're actually wrong almost exclusively. Um, and, and the Russian state in of itself is learning by doing, that is, it's changing things up from each episode and so trying to think that they have a doctrine or a model that's applicable to different conflicts is sort of practicing to fight the last war. Um, but they do have a pretty clever set of stratagems in these various crises that you can see them employing, right? And these range from uh, denial and deception, the point of which is to really uh, model uh, risk calculus perceptions, sort of how the West analyzes what they stand to lose. Um, it, it, it very much confuses and begs the question as to what the response should be. Should you directly contest the thing in question? Should you instead punish Russia international system? So in that regard, it's also quite effective targeting alliance politics and dynamics when you're dealing with a non-unitary state actor, whereas they are, you know, a single state actor, maybe not very unitary, but it's a lot easier when you're gaming against an alliance because then you can create a lot of ambiguity and those allies that don't want to actually contest what you're doing, they're going to use that to their advantage, right, and argue and say, well, we don't know who that is. We don't really have the evidence. It's very confusing. It's a, it's a complicated picture. We should wait and see, you know, until we have more clarity on the situation, et cetera. Um, in another case, you can see Russia employed pretty good strategies in establishing escalation dominance and conflict. Uh, using force mostly for coercion and compellence rather than to actually fight battles and reserve most of the military power um, to, to intimidate and threaten where it's much more effective. Uh, you know, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll leave on that, but we'll welcome other questions on the issue. So I, I'm sort of curious to see, I mean, in the United States, we have this you know, this debate about whole of government that that the intelligence services, the armed for uh, armed forces and the and the State Department are on all on the same page. But um, for Russia, what you what it seems that you're describing is that um, they have a stated political goal. And then if I'm understanding this correctly, then each arm of the government sort of chases these political goals and there's not necessarily coordination. So. How would you – is there a coordination between the intelligence services, the armed services, and their foreign ministry, or is it sort of, you know, one part of the government acts and everybody else follows? Or how, what is what, – what are the implications for an emergent strategy at sort of the agency and the, the organizational level? Right. Well – so, yeah, the United States very much likes the term whole of government approach. However, I will tell you that having had some experience in the U.S. government, I've rarely ever seen that ever walk off a PowerPoint into actual reality. So this is also something that in the U.S. we spend a lot of time briefing, but then we typically struggle accomplishing unity of effort without unity of command, right? So whole of government approach is something like a, a corporate speak term that we use 
here quite a bit, but we ourselves don't do all that well either. And um, you can be very confident that we don't do it well. Uh, Russia hasn't cracked the code on this thing either. In fact, quite the opposite. And they're very comfortable with not necessarily having a whole government approach. They have a sort of more of a whole government competitive approach, which is, um, one, the way the Russian state is set up, at least at, at the top of the decision-making level, it's basically a national security aristocracy, right? And as an aristocracy, it's, it's filled with um, uh, these powerful personalities and clans that are always fighting amongst each other. These are between uh, state security organs, intelligence agencies, power ministries. Uh, and then alongside them are also heavily empowered individuals, those that do not hold official positions in the Russian government, but actually are principal decision makers and influence influencers when it comes to certain issues and do have access to uh, Russian leader Vladimir Putin. So the, uh, the decision-making mechanism is ultimately uh, not deinstitutionalized, right? It's in some formal. There are people involved who hold high-level official positions, and there are also people involved who don't hold any high-level positions but are actually very important people in Russia. Uh, with that said, um, not uncommon to most countries, there's always a competition to shape the course of policy, right? And the way it's done in Russia is that, look, different intel agencies collaborate or coordinate or fight with each other to shape what the policy should be. And they're responsible for different approaches, and they're all hoping that theirs will be the one that proves successful. And that's the one that Vladimir Putin will ultimately choose to back well, he, by and large, stands back and sort of sets the overall agenda. And, in fact, as the confrontation has unfolded and sort of began to spiral out uh, over the last uh, three years, it sort of created the space, the free-for-all, for different individuals to engage in these policies and then try to sell uh, facts they've established on the ground back to the leadership at home and basically say, look, see what I'm doing, this is the success story, you should put state resources behind this and you should sanction these activities, right? And this is going on not just from, you know, intel agencies. There are also some very powerful people in Russia who have money, resources, and the ability to conduct their own either political warfare or unconventional warfare. And they're teaming up with different clans and then they're trying to create these facts on the ground. Then they go back to leadership uh, and say, look, this is a great success story. Uh, this should be our actual official state policy. So the implication for that is it's important to really get how Russia works and why it does the way it does things, right, which is that there's not like Vladimir Putin sitting at home with his game control that's of active measures on and he's pushing buttons on left and right. right? He sort of kind of hovers above it all, and there are only particular occasions where he chooses to take direct control of an operation or effort, but usually uh, there's already been an emergent approach for quite a while that has basically uh, thrown numerous different uh, arrows at the problem, and then eventually one side has a much better argument that what they have been doing and what they're trying to do has the strongest likelihood of achieving the political objectives that Vladimir Putin has, right? And then he looks at that and says, okay, then I'm, we're going to throw resources behind you, and I'm going to officially sanction your idea and the things that you've been doing. Right? But it, of course, creates kind of a cacophony of voices in different attempts that are very much competitive. And you can see throughout that, um, frankly, it often makes a mess. But Russia's approach is very much based on gradualism. That is, they're, they're, they're slowly, uh, um, essentially, salami slicing, right, where they're very careful not to make 
bids from which they can't withdraw or recover. They'd like to maintain exit options and withdrawal options always open because that's how they maintain leverage, by not being leveraged into the conflict in the first place. You know, and they're very keen and by and large, taking a fairly slow approach where they're escalating uh, one bit at a time. This has consequences. A good example of that is eastern Ukraine, which became essentially a bidding contest where they kept ineffectually chipping in uh, uh, and further escalating the conflict, but they couldn't find leverage, so they were basically ineffectually adding pressure on Ukrainians, and this is back in 2014, without being able to find the leverage in the conflict to bend them to, to uh, their will to get their political ends. And ultimately, they had to just invade with the regular forces and engage in a conventional stand-up fight back in August 2014. So their downside because, you know, when the Russians do this, you find there are clear cases where they bid too low. And they were willing to hazard bidding to low and engage in a messy escalation over time rather than just go in uh, at a very high threshold of conflict in a manner that would be expensive, that you couldn't deny, and uh, would leverage and allow your forces and resources, right? But oftentimes you see that because of incrementalism, there are quite a few things they do that fail. Or they succeed but they succeed with unintended costs and consequences as well. And this is we've seen throughout. A good example of that is the shooting down of MH17, right? That is a consequence of integrating uh, limited conventional forces on the battlefield with all these irregular forces, right, and trying to attempt an approach where you would provide key, key conventional um, uh, capabilities of your state onto a battlefield that you have very loose command and control and visibility over, and things get messy, things happen in conflict. Um, and that's a very good example of, of a of huge political blowback from shooting down that civilian airliner. But there are many other cases. We could say, for example, uh, cyber-enabled political warfare. Uh, two recent campaigns were particularly the one of hacking the French elections, right? That does not seem to be very much a success story for Russia and probably had more costs than any gains for them. Interesting. So, I mean, the last part of um, of our the series of questions here, and I'm sort of curious. You're discussing incrementalism and sort of, you know, gradually, you know, working towards a solution and a failing, stepping back. How do we, how do we sort of reference the use of resources in this strategy? I mean, is it, you know. Is it a careful use of limited resources, or is it more sort of improvisational and using sort of whatever is available in that theater or in in that sort of strategy? I mean, how do we relate resources to the bigger mm -hmm. picture? Right. Yeah. So key to Russian approach is, of course, keeping it low cost, an economy of force approach. And by low cost, I don't I mean low cost in every sense. Low cost in terms of uh, military casualties, low cost in terms of uh, literally the amount of money it costs to do, the economic consequence, consequences of it, and low cost to the extent that they can manage in terms of political costs, both at home, well, obviously the domestic public from whom they need uh, not explicit but implicit support and understanding of the policy, and uh, abroad, because to be frank, conflict in the modern international system is actually very expensive, and a lot of what Russia does is geared towards defraying those costs because there are very few states in the international system, like the United States, that can actually afford to, to engage 
in full-throated conflict, um, they have both economic resources themselves and the allies in the position international system. But even then, it becomes very expensive. You look at the cost of our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, they're absolutely astronomical. So anybody looking at that would say, I can't afford to do that. I need to achieve my political objective, so I have to use force differently. I have to combine what instruments of national power I have, my advantages, in a different way because I cannot afford to do what the United States does, right, in the international system. So with this in mind, the Russian approach, first of all, okay, use various asymmetric non-military means to the extent that you can, conventional, uh, unconventional warfare, political warfare, uh, add some force multipliers behind it, like cyber and whatnot, or information operations. These are quite cheap, I mean, to be blunt. Information war and political war is very cheap. And when you put these things together, a political warfare campaign to mobilize the uh, population, what Russians call mobilizing protest potential of population, like the early days of this um, anti-Maidan movement they tried to create in eastern Ukraine, costs very little. And the same goes for all these other things. Let's say the assassination attempt in Montenegro, um, most of other political activities, in terms of actual cost to the states, they're quite minimal. And they also bear a few political costs, right, because you have plausible deniability, um, and there's not much people, frankly, can do to you, even if they know that's you that, that launched the campaign. Now, getting beyond that, uh, when you engage in irregular warfare, unconventional warfare, that is actual, you know, you, you're basically, it, it's still an indirect fight, but it's a kinetic one. There's people getting killed, people shooting each other. Then things get messier and expensive, and you're not sure where it's going to go. So it's cheap for you. However, you have much less control of it, and you have to be comfortable with a higher level of risk in the conflict because you don't know whether it's going to escalate vertically, horizontally, where it will prove to be effective, ineffective, we'll just make a giant mess, and what the blowback might be. Ukraine's a good example of that. Now, when you actually use forces in conflict, let's turn to Syria. We see a very clear example of Russians wanting to dip one toe in, then a couple other toes, but very careful as they wade into the water. And they are cautious to manage their footprint in all conflicts, to the bare minimum required. In fact, they, they sort of calibrated and machine it. Why? They need the conflict to be a minimum low cost. The surest way for the conflict not to be low cost for you, right, is to eventually is to get engaged into mission creep, to start throwing more and more forces into the conflict space, and then you begin to own it. And key to Russian strategy is not to own the conflict space. It's to gain leverage. These are two different things. The United States, for example, is brilliant it owning the battle space, establishing dominance of it, but then not being able to find leverage to achieve the desired political ends and spending a colossal amount of money, right? The Russian approach carries, of course, some risk uh, of not succeeding, but very low costs associated with it. And their basic view, how do you defray costs? The, the ideal scenario is that there are local forces on the ground, and local forces on the ground will be the ones that you empower, you arm, you enable, they fight. You fight and support, not the other way around, where you take the lead and local forces serve as your auxiliary. If there are no local forces on the ground, Russians are not going to go in and basically become a, a chief fighting force in the Middle East or somewhere else. Second, you supplement them with your own volunteers and mercenaries, people who were willing to go and fight. They don't cost much, and if anything happens to them, uh, you don't suffer any political costs at home because they were volunteers and mercenaries, right? They're not soldiers with mothers. Because one of the big problems with using uh, your own forces is people, all those, all those soldiers, they got mothers and parents, and their political costs are taking casualties in conflict for any country. Right? Next, you want to 
employ your own military power decisively. If you don't have a huge amount of it, and Russia's military is very capable in Russia and fighting on Russia's borders, right? But it's set up for fights across the street. It's not, Russia's not an expeditionary power or a maritime power like the United States. So in these particular cases, you want to use military force decisively. You don't want to use a lot of it. And ideally, you keep most of your military power in reserve. Why? Because then you have the threat of pain to come. Because the Russian thinking is that ultimately military power is ideally used for compellence. You want to compel people to do what you tell them to do. And the best way to do that is not to throw your military into the fight. Because if you do, uh, and it doesn't prove effective, it doesn't succeed, then your adversaries know that you don't have anything left. Right? So the much more ideal scenario is that you basically use some force and you show the adversaries what you could do in military power. Then you keep most in reserve so that they know that, one, you have escalation dominance. Two, you can throw a lot more into the fight so there's much more pain to come and they should agree and settle with you early on. Uh, a very good example of that is how Russia annexed Crimea basically without a shot. It wasn't Russian special forces necessarily that did such a good job or just Russian units that filed out and seized the peninsula. It was the fact that Russians began massing conventional military power on Ukraine's border in very large numbers. And then they called Ukrainians and made a very convincing case to them that if they resisted in Crimea, things would escalate and Russia would not be responsible for what happened. And the Ukrainians had to weigh the prospect of Russians seizing and annexing Crimea against the prospect of being invaded wholesale by Russia and losing a lot more. And not surprisingly, given the military realities of the time, uh, Ukrainians took the, you know, took the the lower cost option. So, I mean, I think we can see across the board of Russia basically um, being by and large effective at defraying costs of conflict and trying to engage such that uh, they pay very little for the leverage they've attained. In the Middle East right now, at the very least, they're trying to establish a role as a power broker in the region on the cheap. That is, if you look at the actual cost of the intervention in Syria, it's incredibly cheap. Um, it's, it's almost ridiculous to discuss. So it's a couple billion dollars. And, uh, and I think throughout um, the international arena, you can see Russia basically looking for ways that they can, at fairly low cost, either political, economic, or military, um, punch well above their weight and establish a decisive role, either as a power broker or potentially as a spoiler to U.S. interests. So then... I'm sort of curious in um, how, first, how is failure conceptualized within this model? And then, second, how is it sort of dealt with? And not, not just in terms of moving funding away or into a project, but is there, what is the cost of failing in, the, in this case? Is it, you know, you know, go ahead. Right. So, Failure is actually a really fascinating discussion, right? Um, in order to do what Russia does, you actually have to be very comfortable with failure at home. Now, that in many ways is pegged to the nature of the Russian political system, right, which is basically like a marginal autocracy or anocracy. But by and large, it is one in which they have overwhelming control of the domestic information environment. They are very effective at shaping... Uh, domestic public sentiment, and but they don't keep in mind shaping, not controlling. It's quite a misnomer to think that Russian leadership is not ever conscious of domestic public approval and the fact that it could change. There are clear cases we see that, as in Syria, 
Well, part of the reason their presence is so small is that public support was never that strong for the campaign in Syria. And so the whole thing is a potential liability that they're one big visible disaster away from uh, domestic public sentiment changing on this entire thing. So in order to do this approach, you have to be very comfortable with failure because I said it was a fail fast, fail cheap approach. So the goal is you can you look very early on. It's highly iterative, right? Is the approach I'm taking looking like it's successful or not, right? Am I going to attain leverage with this approach? If you're not, then abandon it and, disc and, and discard it. Why? You have no domestic political stakes. Nobody in the Russian Duma is going to stand up and, accusing you, and accuse you of cutting and running, right? It's not the United States. And two, you're a very agile system. You have a decision-making process that involves barely a handful of people, and they can make a decision any given night, right? You don't make – you're not – you don't make decisions like institutions. You make decisions like a small ruling elite in a national security aristocracy by and large presided over by a monarch. So, I mean, that's the reality of it. It's much faster to make calls then and basically change, change uh, approaches. Right? And because it's iterative, your costs are low every time you acknowledge failure, right? So you say, this didn't work or that didn't work. And sometimes it's sequential. And other times it's almost simultaneous where you basically – um, you've given sanction to a number of different approaches, different attempts to attain leverage. And the ones that were works, works, and all the other ones you're just going to discard. And they were low-cost bids, and they just didn't work out. Uh, right. So in, in terms of failure, one of the big things the Russians try to manage is, first and foremost, how to keep any foreign policy failure from coming back and entering domestic politics and entering the domestic sort of media bloodstream, even though they... Uh, control most of the media that you see on TV. There are lots of other things in Russia where access is not controlled. It's free, almost fairly free, although that's that's increasingly being constrained or curtailed somehow access to information on the Internet. But suffice to say, Russia's not China. does not have a great firewall yet. Um, so uh, there they understand that, look, public sentiment can change, and they, and they, and they're, they, they machine it closely. They keep close track of it. Now, beyond that, where they're much less effective in understanding the economic and legal consequences of action, and that's come back to bite them repeatedly for several years, and that's part of, I think, of a cognitive bias they have on how they look at the international system as one, basically, of real politic that is, you know, about how much power you have in the international system and status, but they're not really cognizant that, you know, very heavy economic costs can be imposed on them for their activities over the course of time. Um, you know, not on political diplomatic costs, uh, so far at least, because the things that they have been fighting over, they've been contesting, are very important to them, like Ukraine falls very much squarely into the core interest bracket, they are very willing to suffer the political and diplomatic costs for the things that they've done, right? Because the costs ultimately are not compelling. They're much lower than Russian stakes in that conflict. There's much less so in Syria. And that's because you see in Syria, Russia playing a very nuanced diplomatic and political game. But they have right, been very successful and actually won succeeding in, in, in the fight together with Iran, uh, uh, Iranian Shia militia allies like Hezbollah and Syrian forces, but also bringing the United States by and large on board with its political approach for settlement of the conflict because the U.S. doesn't have them that much of a hand to play anyway. Um, but they've been pretty good at diplomatically and politically shaping uh, the U.S. position on Syria over the past two years. So I want to 
um, switch footing a little and discuss, I think, something that is, has come up a lot um, post-2016, which is um, the relationship of information warfare and information operations to Russian strategy. Um, more specifically, I, I, I'm sort of curious, I mean, do we, when we discuss Russian information operations, do we, do we conceptualize it as, as um, something that's seeking technical superiority similar to the United States? Or is it more, as, as you pointed out repeatedly, like it's more about leverage and, and being able to influence situations as opposed to, you know, controlling and, and being able to surveil all network activity, for example? Okay, so this, of course, is quite a challenging topic because it's sort of like feeling an elephant, you know, with with a blindfold, right? But depending on what part you you you've touched, you see something different. It's a very it's a very large amorphous topic, but perhaps I can lay it out analytically. The best way to approach it is to think about three different levels, right? So the first one is broadly strategic, okay? And from that perspective. The, the, the information fight is, is um, uh, almost like a perpetual uh, culture war because the truth is that um, today in, in modern international system 2017, we are part of the same information environment, uh, unlike the Soviet Union, Russia is not cut off from, from Western media press and we aren't from theirs. And we can read what they're putting on Twitter and what they're publishing and what their media is showing on TV every day. And... Uh, likewise, uh, from their side. So here, the first strategic level issue is that, look, principally, um, because Russia is an authoritarian system, uh, you have a very obvious problem where they are trying to create space for them and breathing room in the global information environment, right? Okay, look, they are liberal nationalists. That's the, if there is to be some kind of ideology behind that state, um, that would be the best way to put out. At least that's the value system, right? Whereas the United States and a lot of Western countries are principally liberal internationalists, and so these um, it, it clearly are big for very poor roommates in the informational environment to begin with, right? Uh, in fact, they, they find each other's messages and views quite intolerable. And so, uh, but the Russian perspective is that they, in terms of resources that they can throw in the information domain, um, are wholly outclassed and outgunned and outnumbered because most of the West resources are actually commercial and they reflect a lot of Western values and they kind of dominate the global information environment. So in that regard, the Russian approach is basically a denial campaign, which is much cheaper, and that is um, just like creating um, the, the percep public perception that there's no known truths or facts. And it's, it's, it's principally an information on certain campaign at the strategic level, right? Again, it's lower cost because they don't have the resources. Like it's actually not even clear who watches RT or Sputnik. It, it almost seems sometimes that the only audience for this is uh, the the budding cottage industry in the West of people who want to fight Russian information warfare. Like it's not even obvious who who the real audience is for some of these things. The metrics are don't show it to be all that effective. But uh, so strategic level, kind of low cost disinformation approach, trying to kill any concept that there's truth and make anything fungible, and that kind of creates breathing space for Russia in, in, in that environment. Next, actual operational level. Here, we have Russian employment of information, Russian uh, leveraging of information warfare in support of either combat operations or regular warfare, unconventional warfare, 
some kind of campaign. So here we have our cases like Crimea, Eastern Ukraine, Syria. Uh, there, the Russians had seized that, look, information, war, information is a domain, like ground, sea, air, right, space. And in that regard, it's a very important domain in um, modern warfare, and that uh, if you seize it, if you leverage it, you, it becomes an important force multiplier for your actual campaign on the ground. Like if you're engaging in a regular warfare, then you can leverage information warfare for denial and deception. You can leverage it to reduce all sorts of costs. So part of it is provide cover in conflict. Part of it is to substantially defray costs, both at home from using force, political costs at home, and abroad, political, economic, and various other costs, right? And, and this, this is um, an important tool in the various shaping approaches and strategies that Russia employs in use of force and conflict. Uh, it took them a very long time to get there, and what actually got Russia to get much better at, in, at, at how they leveraged the information domain was what they felt a defeat in uh, information environment during their war with Georgia in August 2008. They thought that they were successful in conflict, but um, uh, the West painted this very unfavorable narrative of it, and when their media engaged with the West and tried to shape and advance Russia's narrative, Russia's story of that war, they weren't successful. And that kind of pushed the state to take information warfare much more seriously and to basically say, hey, we need to really do a lot of these things, one that we see the West doing, but also some of the things that uh, leverage Russia's advantage is a much more autocratic system. Okay? And then the third point is really about information warfare in support of political warfare campaigns. Now, we'll say political warfare has information as an aspect of it, but if you look at Russia's particular um, target political warfare campaigns to achieve, let's say, political certain electoral outcomes in different European countries to shape European politics, to mobilize compatriots, to get and get um, try to build leverage in uh, another country's election, for example, um, to co-opt elites elsewhere. There, it's important. It's a very important uh, uh, part of the Russian toolkit, but it varies from uh, campaign to campaign. So it's not sort of like across the board that we see a particular model of approaches, and in part varies because there are different actors that are playing in the in this in this pond and, and leveraging the information toolkit. Some of them are elements of the state, like intelligence agencies. Some of them are uh, people in the presidential administration. Some of them are oligarchs and very powerful actors. And you, one thing you have to understand that, for example, like the, the, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine actually early on is almost a conflict between non-state actors because, uh, it, you know, the, the, both the people heavily involved in that conflict on the Russian side early on were um, uh, very empowered individuals who were oligarchs with state sanctions but who had a very particular ideology and outlook. And the people who were the first responders on the Ukrainian side were also oligarchs with their own private forces and their own particular views. Uh, and, and so it's, it, it's a lot more complicated than just looking at from the perspective of unitary state actors because the Russian state is not unitary. As I said, it's an aristocracy. Aristocracies have powerful feudal lords. They have clans, and they have people involved in palace intrigue, and they have and they have a much messier sort of Byzantine process in terms of how policy actually gets made. And the same goes for uh, political warfare and how they do information warfare campaigns. So, uh, 
I want to switch footing and and look at sort of two big picture topics. One is the first one is um, here in the United States, we I, I think is a, there's a popular notion that um, Putin is this master strategist. That um, Vladimir Putin is this you know just amazing strategist, and he's sort of painted as almost as a, a 12 foot giant. And you know the question for our, our conversation here is that you know what we're seeing. Is it, you know, do we regard Putin as a master strategist, as a, you know, as a type of person to be able to sort through, you know, the politics, the national security politics? Or are we, what we're really saying is, is, you know, very well executed opportunism that there's, there's certain security gaps and they're being taken advantage of, you know, whether NATO and Syria or wherever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. So, first two points now, look, one, it's not just Vladimir Putin that you're dealing with. So, one of the problems is people like fixing Vladimir Putin, and I really hate the sort of notion of Russia that I find a lot of propaganda see because they're like, okay, Russia's a really big country with a population of one guy. His name is Vladimir Putin. All we need to know is kind of divine and do sort of amateur Freudian psychoanalysis of Vladimir Putin, and then we have our answers, right? So, obviously, there are a lot of actors in there besides Vladimir Putin that are part of uh, uh, shaping Russian foreign policy, national security policy, and are big players in confrontation. Vladimir Putin sometimes is the referee. He arbitrates between them. Other times he takes direct control of certain things that he's very interested in. And other times he stands back sort of aloof from seeds of interest and just says, I, I want to see how this whole thing plays itself out. Because believe it or not, he's actually notorious for being um, uh, very cautious and, and quite... Um, hesitant in making decisions until he really has to, right? He's actually not that proactive. He's more of a reactionary decision-maker, uh, despite the sort of fabled reputation in the West. Now, of course, he's not 12 feet tall, but he's pretty good at what he does. He's not a brilliant strategist, but he's been in charge for almost over 17 years. If you count, um, going back to 1999 when he first became prime minister, before he was president, he's been in power now just a bit longer than Stalin was in charge of the Soviet Union. I'm not kidding. So believe it or not, he has more experience in foreign policy and national security policy than literally everybody else he's dealing with. So, yeah, he's not bad. Now, is he a brilliant strategist? No. And actually, um, if there is, and there's no good way to categorize, but I've had these fights on War in the Rocks with other people um, in, in writing articles with this debate of whether uh, Lamp Putin's a brilliant grand strategist or a strategic failure, and the answer is, of course, neither. These are... Um, categorical statements which at face value are false and can't be true. But uh, uh, is he an effective operator? Is he good tactically? Yes, he is. Is there a strategy in the things Russia does? Yes. It's not a deliberate strategy. It's not a grand strategy I described. It's much more lean and emergent and it's suitable to these individuals. Right? A lot of people running Russia are either from the national security establishment or from uh, these sort of oligarchic business circles and uh, they're not, they at least they don't seem to be very keen on doing uh, deliberate strategy uh, and seems, seems to work for them. If there's a glib way to put it, I would say that the Russian state and leadership are quite effective and quite clever at getting themselves out of problems that smart people don't get into, right? <laughs> and, and, and that's the essence of what Russia's been doing on the international stage probably for the past three years, which is if they were very good at grand strategy and if they were very good at sort of planning out deliberate strategy, they would not have the problems and crises that they have faced. However, they are very good at getting out of them, right? 
or it means buying themselves lots of time, which ultimately is what a lot of politics is all about because, you know, the best leaders solve problems, but the second best uh, find a way <laughs> find a way to ensure their own political survival while pushing the problem off into some distant future, and we got plenty of those in the United States. Interesting. So then for my sort of last big picture question is in, in terms of how do we explain – in terms of like, you know, competition between nation states, the sort of the rise of Russia in the last decade or so, because it seems like on one timeline you can you can build Russia's proactiveness in foreign policy. You can say Georgia, Estonia, Ukraine involvement in Syria, and then on another timeline you can also build and say, well, United States's engagement in Afghanistan, in Iraq, the sort of shifting from conventional warfare and near-peer warfare to counterinsurgency in CT. So I'm sort of curious, when we look at U.S. and Russian relations, is sort of the rise of Russia sort of built on sort of the United States's sort of, I wanted to, you know, I would, you know, degrade might be a powerful word, but sort of the U.S.'s conventional ability is sort of degraded as it has sort of shifted to a CT and counterinsurgency mission yeah i, I get your question so um it's it's it, look it's an astute observation right the united states has principally been dealing with um uh asymmetric adversaries in conducting peace enforcement counterinsurgency stability operations all the adversaries we fought like the taliban al-qaeda islamic state are ones with no escalation dynamics whatsoever. These are guys on the back of pickup trucks, right? And there's no escalation dynamics to the conflict. And there we've had the liberty of uh, dominating the battlefield and being able to uh, dictate, the, in many respects, um, the capabilities we introduce in the conflict, the ones we withdraw, and have a lot of freedom of action. So in terms of having to deal with peer and near-peer adversaries, that's not been the case, uh, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, and even in cases where we had clear conventional fights like Gulf War 1991, uh, Coastal Air Operation 1999, or recent war with Iraq 2003, this was not uh, remotely a comparable fight between peers, right? It was the world's preeminent conventional superpower together with a metric ton of allies engaging uh, against a third, fourth-rate conventional military power, like, you know, defending the Iraqi regime. So uh, now that uh, Russia's gone through this um, tandem process of military reforms launched in late 2008 and military modernization, which began in 2011, yeah, of course, they've engaged in a whole host of internal balancing that's re really resurrected uh, Russian conventional military power and military power writ large as an important instrument of the national toolkit. Um, and it was principally Russian behavior, i.e. seizure and annexation of Crimea, then invasion of eastern Ukraine, that really turned opinions around in the United States on the nature of the Russian threat of what Russian conventional military power can do. Because part of it is uh, a raw state's assessment of how strong other states are in the international system, but that is only a part of the answer and a small part of the answer. Really, countries and leaders react to whether or not they perceive the military power of the other state to be a threat. So they're not just sort of balancing power as they, like, raw measure it, right? You pull out your tape measure and you say, we're this strong and they're that strong. This is our defense budget, that's China's defense budget. 
your power is important, but really your your perceptions are geared towards how you how you see their intent. And was when Russian intent became clearly aggressive and uh, irredentist, um, and at the very least, uh, uh, you know, quite hostile towards a neighbor like Ukraine. That was when U.S. policy community began to rapidly reassess what's the nature of the Russian threat, how strong is really Russian the Russian military, what can they do, and then they started looking what was the military balance between NATO and Russia, particularly in the eastern flank states. Now, in some ways, this has been the case with China for quite a while, and it's kind of been a bit on the back burner in the conversation. But the truth is, that much of the U.S. defense establishment has been measuring itself against China and China's rise for quite some time now. Is China's rapidly turning its economic prowess into military strength, right? And that that may be that may be something that looms in the background, but actually looms much larger than Russian military power and what Russia will be able to do on the threat that it poses in the coming decades. So, uh, you know, your principal observation: the United States has been away doing all these all this low intensity conflict stability operations in expeditionary environment against. Um, principally really annoying, frustrating uh, adversaries who engaging in various types of regular unconventional warfare is correct. But the United States has not been dealing with peers or near peers with whom the escalation dynamics are very serious, and with Russia, they're maximalist. That is, Russia is still the only country that can destroy the United States in 35 minutes, and they can do it any given day if they wake up and have a particularly fatalistic morning. You know, they can totally do it. That's important not to forget with the real possibilities of escalation and where a mismanaged crisis could take you with a pure adversary like that. Interesting. So <clears throat> we've sort of we've reached the, the last bit of the interview, and um, we always like to have our guests leave us with um, something to think about, something to chew on, something that's sort of the big takeaway. So just leave us with something to think about. Oh, leave us some. Well... You know, if the prospect of a deteriorating confrontation with a pure nuclear state is not enough to think about and to make you wonder about in the morning, uh, let me see what I could add. I mean, one thing I definitely think about is, look, here's, here's the truth. Um, one of the most uh, strategic decisions that the United States made, and it made it, it totally walked backwards into it, almost blindly, was just about a month ago. When the U.S. Congress voted to... Uh, uh, take away control over sanctions from the presidential administration, it by and large institutionalized a new Cold War with Russia. That was the strategic consequence of that decision, and the U.S. Congress did that because of domestic politics. It was a domestic political decision. They did not trust the Trump administration. They took away their power for bargaining and negotiating with Russia. But that is going to have consequences that last for years, well into the 2020s. So something to think about is here's the deal. We have now officially institutionalized this confrontation into what's going to be de facto, a new Cold War. We are not in the happy phase of the Cold War, which most people think is the 1980s. The, new, the Cold War had many decades, and some of them were very dangerous, full of brinksmanship, people engaging in all sorts of activities where they didn't know the cost, consequences, and what the reaction of the other person would be. We are much closer to the 1960s of the, of the uh, Cold War than we are to the 1980s. And now it's important to understand that we are now, this confrontation is now becoming structural. That is, we are in it, and not clear, at least to me, when U.S. policy or strategy will actually emerge for how we're going to handle this ultimate, this confrontation and how we're going to win it. Oh, 
thank you so much. Um, that was uh, Michael Kaufman, and um, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. My pleasure. Of course.